There's a saying that goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And sometimes I've got to say, that's how I, and I'm sure many other instructors and examiners feel every day. When we keep putting out all the good stuff, but it seems like no one's listening and they keep making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. So today's episode, I'm going to take you through my top five IPC tips so you can save money on your training, be better prepared and have a successful test. All that and more coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 63 of the Flight Training Australia podcast, the podcast all about flight training in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you very much for joining me. For those of you new to the podcast, welcome, thank you for uh, sticking with me and checking it all out. Please make sure you tell your friends and family all about it, probably not your family, they're not going to care, but definitely all your flying buddies, let them know, heaps and heaps of great content here and heaps more coming. If you're loving the show and you'd like to support me, patreon.com forward slash flight training Australia. The link's in the description for this episode. You can go there, join any one of the three levels of membership and all funds raised there are fully tax deductible and go directly to the production of this show and YouTube videos, which will be uh, coming out very, very soon. I've nearly got one finished, believe it or not. All right. I've been doing a lot of IPCs, as always, uh, a lot of discussion, a lot of instructor training endorsements as well, and a lot of conversations have been had just about perceptions and people's concepts or ideas on how IFR stuff works, and it's really shown that regardless of uh, how many times either myself or others reiterate after discussing it with other examiners and trainers, it just seems to be the same things that keep coming up. And I don't know what it is, but people just aren't listening or they're not getting it or they're convincing themselves that they do understand when they don't. So I just want to go through some top tips to get through an IPC and the most common errors that we see being made. And this is by no means exhaustive. There's obviously so many more things, but these are just a few main ones and I'll chuck in a couple of bonus ones at the end. But ultimately, overall, the preparation has got to be key. Um, quite often I have IPCs booked in months ahead, especially at the moment when we've been so busy. There's been heaps of time to get prepared, but for whatever the reason is, the day before they're due to show up is the first time they start thinking about getting ready for the training start thinking about reading some material and relying on all these cheat sheets and stuff. And it's just not working. Remember that this isn't just a simple regurgitation of procedures and processes. You've got to understand it. So reading through cheat sheets and uh, maybe doing a practice simulator session, either on a, a, a workplace sim or a home sim, uh, is not enough, especially if you don't really know what you're doing and you're practicing the wrong things, or you're usually going to practice the simple, easy things that you already know. So get proper preparation. If you're going for an IPC, get some practice in the simulator, 
get some practice in the aircraft. There's just no substitute for uh, good proper training. And unfortunately, that costs money. It's just how it is. Uh, if you're not ready, wait a little while. Commit and support yourself. Invest in yourself and wait until you can afford to do at least a practice sim and a practice flight to give yourself a chance. Um, it's also, remember, not just about passing the IPC, but being able to be competent and proficient in IFR flight. Right? It's not easy, and especially uh, at the moment up here at the top end with the monsoon and the weather and going into the winter conditions on the east coast, and even now um, on the east coast there's still plenty of thunderstorms and heavy rainfall going on, low cloud, uh, everyone's got to be super vigilant and you know, current and proficient to be able to fly in those sort of conditions as they're going to give themselves a scare and get into trouble. All right, SIDs. If you are doing a SID, uh, which I appreciate not everybody does because they just don't exist at Eurodrome, but if you are, there's things in there like uh, climb radiance. Make sure you know how to convert a climb gradient to feet per minute so it's actually something useful and it's really really easy you can go into the front of the uh, charts and there'll be a conversion table otherwise just simply times the percentage usually around 3.3 percent times your ground speed for your particular climb rate and your speed will be your blue line so let's just call it 100 knots for easy calculation that means a 3.3% climb gradient on a SID would be 330 feet per minute. You need to achieve single engine. We don't talk about two engines because obviously you'll far exceed that. But single engine, that's what you need to make. The next thing is sometimes on radar SIDs, you'll see the term DER, which means departure end of the runway. How are you going to know when you cross the departure end of the runway? Now, most people will be like, well, I just take off and it disappears underneath me. Or it's about a mile and a half that way. All right, well, we need to be more accurate than that. So the easiest way is to get into the GPS, load the departure, and that will program itself to the particular NAVAID or reference point or the DER, which is the departure end of the runway. Once you cross that, you'll get a from a flag. It will then sequence onto the next waypoint in your en route sequence. All right, then you'll have phraseology. If you're doing a visual departure, you're going to get turn right heading something. In Darwin, it's typically your front my 29, 320. But if it's a SID, then you read the, the blurb about the particular runway departure and it will use the term assigned heading. And that's what you need to read back when you do your takeoff clearance. When you report ready, Tower will give you a turn right assigned heading 320, clear for takeoff. You need to read that back. If you start abbreviating, hyphenating, dropping bits out, they're just going to have to come back to you to get you to read back the whole part. So just do it right in the first place, and it'll make your life a lot less stressful. All right, OBS. I've mentioned it multiple times. Omnibearing selector. Suspension. Right, when we're heading to a waypoint and we don't want it to sync what's on, we need to suspend it, we need to obstruct it, we need to obs it, All right, we need to stop the sequence from happening. We need to do that with sufficient time to stop, stop it sequencing on, otherwise we're going to miss it, or it might even try and start turning back from where you came. When you've got an angle, 
which is tracking to somewhere and then coming back at you almost the same direction, the GPS is going to turn that into a flyby waypoint and it's going to try and turn back potentially even up to 15 miles away from the destination. Uh, it can happen very early. So you need to understand how this software logic works and how the GPS is going to behave given your current route um, programmed into the GPS. So make sure you understand OBS. Now, if you're going to suspend a waypoint and it's going to sequence onto a right turn, you cannot set that right turn until you cross the waypoint. Otherwise, it will just disappear from in front of you. You won't know where it is and you can't just dead reckon to it. All right. I'm going to make a video on this very, very soon. So you'll have all the visuals and it'll make a lot more sense. But if you are coming into a north-south holding pattern, left-hand pattern, and let's just say you're coming inbound on a 030 heading, and then you had to go north after that. If you set zero, or sorry, 360 before you reach that fix, it's just, where is it now? It's out in front of you somewhere, sure, but you can't be accurately tracking over the top of it anymore. Okay, so you need to wait until you approach the waypoint and then you can set it. Don't change things if you've got to get into the capture region until you get to the waypoint. All right, CDI accuracy. Near enough is not good enough. If the CDI is not in the middle, then you're not on track. Okay, sure, you might be within half-scale deflection. But if you let the GPS CDI sit out to the side, you then start heading into approach mode and it scales in on you, you're going to run out of room very, very quickly. All right, with current 146 GPSs, got a sequence down to 0.3 by the final approach fix down to 0.1. 0.1 half scale is barely the gable markers. It's only just outside the gable markers within the flight strip. It is not very far off the center line at all. And if you're not onto it, in those final few miles of the approach, you're going to lose your tolerance and you're going to be forced into a missed approach and potentially fail your flight test. So get it in the middle. Learn how to track. Learn how to use any track guidance, uh, wind drift information that you have, direct track versus tracking. That will tell you what your drift angle is so you can hold it. Make sure you get all that sorted in your mind. If you're using an older school basic uh, VOR, DG, manually uh, slaved, you need to do your compass and DG checks far more often. Every turn leads to a little bit of gyroscopic precession and it doesn't take long for your compass and DG to be 5 to 10 degrees out and that can be enough to just mess with your head and throw off your tracking. So make sure you get stuck into that as well. ILS, top of descent. It's not a distance. It's a glide slope. That's the whole purpose of doing a 3D approach. All right, people are trying to calculate where the top of descent point is based on 8.2 miles or whatever it is. It's not. It's the glide slope. All you're going to do is line it up, allow for your drift, and go down with the glide slope. The distances are there for localizer descents when you don't have a glide slope, just like you would do 
an RMP approach or a VOR approach? VOR DME. All right, so use the glide slope to help you and know where you're trying to put the nose for your rate of descent. Remember, standard three-degree descent profile is going to be 320 feet per mile. How do we fly that? Simply get your descent ground speed and halve it at a zero or times it by five, whatever math is easiest. So if you're doing 100 knots, you're looking for 500 feet per minute. If you're doing 120 knots, 600 feet per minute. If you're doing 400, sorry, if you're doing 90 knots or 80 knots, like I was the other day, I had 140 knots indicated. No, I didn't. I had 120 knots indicated, uh, but I had 80 knot ground speed. I was getting smashed by headwinds. Okay, 80, halve it, 400 feet per minute. It's not very much. If I keep doing more than 400 feet per minute, the only result is going to be I'm going to constantly go below glide slope. I'm going to be chasing needles. So rather than chasing needles, set the rate of descent. It's got nothing to do with your power or your airspeed. It's all about that ground speed. And you set the vertical speed to that required rate of descent and you will hold the glide slope. Remember when you deploy gear and flap, that's going to slow you down. You're going to need to adjust your rate of descent. Work out the new attitude and hold that. And down it goes. It will make your life so much simpler than trying to chase needles. When you get to the minima, remember you should have everything deployed. Gear, flap, power should be all set. It's a DA, decision altitude. So you simply look up, runway, keep going. No runway, go around, missed approach. You are allowed to descend below a DA on a precision approach or a 3D approach. On a 2D approach, on a minimum descent altitude, it means exactly that. Minimum descent. Do not go below. All right. Whereas on an ILS, a DA, you can go below it within reason in the process of going around. So Darwin's is 290 feet on the ILS. If you went down 100 feet, you're probably taking the piss a bit. All right. But going down to 250, 60, 70 feet, that would be within reason. And I should imagine you shouldn't need any more than that to uh, get the aircraft to go around and start cleaning it up and climb away. All right. So remember those things. Keep it uh, sorted in your mind. Look for these attitudes, these descent profiles. It will make your life so much easier. Preparation is the key, guys. I cannot reiterate it enough. Remember that this isn't just about flying from A to B and then potentially back to A again. All right, You need to be able to fly your departures, work the aircraft, know the systems, the avionics. Practice, practice, practice. Plug it into external power if you get the opportunity. Use simulators, whatever it takes to get familiar with the equipment and don't convince yourself that you know what you're doing because you fly this aeroplane or something similar. If you're not flying at IFR, you're going to be using the aircraft in a very different way. GPS functionality, for example. Everyone's used to going direct to waypoint. You do that IFR, if that waypoint's not in your flight plan sequence, you're going to take it out of it. You're going to go into en route mode. Your tolerance is going to go way out to two miles. Assume you've got a 145 or 46 unit. If you've got a 129 GPS, that's going to go to five miles. 
So now half scale deflection is two and a half miles off track. If you've heard me mention this before, I'm going to keep saying it. You have to use the GPS within the function. Your waypoints need to be in the en route section of your flight plan. Don't add waypoints to the end of your approach sequence. All right, because again, it's going to mess it up and take it all out of the, uh, the functionality, the, the tolerances and what you're expecting it to do. If you just hit direct to and enter a waypoint, it will take you out of that, take you out of the navigation tolerances you've uh, noted down and labeled. And yeah, it's just going to get very disorientating. And the final one is Q&A settings. I constantly get, I'm coming down to this aerodrome, we're going to descend to a minimum of 550 feet uh, because it's got a TAF. That's just fantastic. What about the TAF? What is the actual Q&H? Remember, you must set that Q&H. If it's got an AWIS, you must listen to the AWIS or the ATIS and set the Q&H. If you've got area forecast, then add 50 feet. So remember to brief it when you come in that I am descending to this minima on this Q&H and what it is, and that will prompt you to realize that, yes, I have got the right Q&H and I've got it set, or hang on a minute, I've got to get that Q&H. If you come down to the wrong minima after flying the perfect approach, you will fail because you have not set the correct minima. So don't make that mistake. All right, guys, I hope that all helps you. Um, remember, if you've got any questions at all about IFR or anything else, you can hit me up. Info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook and uh, send me messages there as well. Until next week, blue skies and remember the golden rule. Aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>